Chapter Fourteen of Snowdrift, a story of the land of the strong cold, by James B. Hendricks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Snowdrift by James B. Hendricks. Chapter Fourteen, in the Barrens. Late that evening, Brent and Joe Pete were surprised by a knock upon the door of their cabin. Brent answered the summons, and three Indians filed solemnly into the room. Two of them stood blinking foolishly while the third drew from a light pack a fox skin which he extended for Brent's inspection. Brent handed the skin to Joe Pete. "'What's all this?' he asked. "'What do they want?' "'Hooch!' answered the Indian, who had handed over the skin. Brent shook his head. "'No hooch here,' he answered. "'You've come to the wrong place. You are the fellows I saw today in the camp up the river. Tell me, who is the young lady that claims she's an Indian? And why is she on the warpath?' The three stared stolidly at each other and at Brent, but gave no hint of understanding a word he had uttered. He turned to Joe Pete. "'You try it,' he said. "'See if you can make them talk.' The Indian tried them in two or three coast dialects, but to no purpose, and at the end of his attempt the visitors produced two more fox skins and added them to the first. "'They think we're holding out for a higher price,' laughed Brent. "'No wonder these damned hooch peddlers can afford to take a chance.' What are those skins worth? Joe Pete examined the pelts critically. This one, she dark cross fox, worth maybe so thirty dollar. This one and this one, cross fox, worth about twenty dollar. Seventy dollars for a bottle of hooch? cried Brent. It's robbery. He handed back the skins, and at the end of five minutes, during which time he indicated as plainly as possible by means of signs that there was no hooch forthcoming. The Indians took their departure. The next evening they were back again, and this time they offered six skins, one of them a silver fox that Joe Pete said would bring eighty dollars at any trading post. After much patient pantomime, Brent finally succeeded in convincing them that there was really no hooch to be had, and with openly expressed disgust the three finally took their departure. Shortly after noon, a week later, Brent drew the last bucket of gravel from the shallow shaft, threw it onto the dump, and leaving Joe Pete to look after the fire, took his rifle and struck off up the river in search of caribou. "'Go down the river,' whispered the still small voice of common sense. There are no hunters there. But Brent only smiled and held his course. And as he swung over the snow trail, his thoughts were of the girl who had stepped from the cabin and angrily ordered him from the village at the point of her rifle. Each day during the intervening week he had thought of her, and he had lain awake at night and tried in vain to conjure a reason for her strange behavior. Alone on the trail he voiced his thoughts. Why should she threaten to shoot me? Who does she think I am? 
why should she declare she is an Indian? I don't believe she's any more Indian than I am. Who ever heard of an Indian with eyes like hers? And lips, yes, and a tip-tilted nose. Possibly a breed, but never an Indian. And I wonder if her warlike attitude includes the whole white race, or a limited part of it, or only me. I'll find out before this winter is over, but I'll bet she can shoot. She threw that shell into her rifle in a sort of offhand practiced way, like most girls would powder their nose. His speculation was cut short by a trail that crossed the river at a right angle and headed into the scrub in a southeasterly direction. The trail was only a few hours old and had been made by a small band of caribou traveling at a leisurely pace. Abruptly, Brent left the river and struck into the trail. For an hour he followed it through the scraggly timber and across patches of open tundra and narrow beaver meadows. The animals had been feeding as they traveled, and it was evident that they could not be far ahead. Cautiously topping a low ridge, he sighted them upon a small open tundra about two hundred yards away. There were seven, all told, two bulls, three cows, and two yearlings. One of the bulls and two cows were pawing the snow from the moss, and the others were lying down. Taking careful aim, Brent shot the standing bull. The animals that had been lying down scrambled to their feet, and three more shots in rapid succession accounted for a cow and one of the yearlings and Brent watched the remaining four plunge off through the snow in the direction of the opposite side of the tundra, which was a mile or more in width. When they had almost reached the scrub, he was startled to see the flying bull suddenly rear high and topple into the snow. The next instant one of the others dropped, and a moment later a third. Then to his ears came the sound of four shots fired in rapid succession. As Brent stepped out onto the tundra and, sheath-knife in hand, walked to his fallen caribou, he saw a figure from the opposite scrub. An exclamation of surprise escaped him. It was the girl of the Indian village. "'Wonder if she needs any help,' he muttered as he slit the throat of his third caribou. He glanced across the short open space to see the girl bending over the carcass of the other bull. "'Guess I'll take a chance,' he grinned, "'and go and see.' "'I knew she could shoot. Three out of four running shots. That's going some.' When he was halfway across the open, he saw the girl rise and wipe the blade of her knife upon the hair of the dead bull's neck. She turned and, knife in hand, waited for him to approach. Brent noted that her rifle lay within easy reach of her hand, propped against the dead animal's belly. He noted also that as he drew near, she made no move to recover it. Jerking at the strings of his cap, he removed it from his head. "'That was mighty good shooting,' he smiled. "'Those brutes were sure traveling.' but they were very close i couldn't have missed it took two shots for the last one 
but both bullets counted. You did good shooting, too. Your shots were harder. They were farther away. Did all your bullets count? Brent laughed aloud from pure joy. He hardly heard her words. The only thing he could clearly comprehend was the fact that there was no hint of anger in the dark eyes, and that the red lips were smiling. "'I'm sure I don't know,' he managed to reply. "'I didn't stop to look. I think very likely I missed one shot.' "'Why do you take your cap off?' she asked, and almost instantly she smiled again. "'Oh, yes, I know. I have read of it. But they don't do it here. Put it on, please. It is cold.' Brent returned the cap to his head. "'I'm glad I didn't know the other day how expert you are with your rifle,' he laughed, "'or I wouldn't have stayed as long as I did.' The girl regarded him gravely. "'You are not angry with me?' she asked. "'Why, no, of course not. Why should I be angry with you? I knew that there was no reason why you should shoot me, and I knew that things would straighten out somehow.' I thought you had mistaken me for someone else, and— I thought you were a hooch runner, interrupted the girl. I did not think any white man who is not a hooch runner or a policeman would be way over here, and I could see that you were not in the mounted. No, answered Brent, I am not in the mounted, but how do you know that I am not a hooch runner? "'Because three of our band went to your cabin that very night to buy hooch, and they did not get it. And the next night they went again and took more fox skins, and again they came away empty-handed.' "'You sent them, then?' "'No, no. But I knew that they would think the same as I did, that you wanted to trade them hooch. So I followed them when they slipped out of the village. Both nights I followed.' and I pressed my ear close to the door, so that I heard all you said. Brent smiled. I have some recollection of asking one of those wooden images something about a certain warlike young lady. The girl interrupted him with a laugh. Yes, I heard that, and I heard you swear at the hooch traders, and tell the Indians there was no hooch in the cabin, and I was glad. The man's eyes sought hers in a swift glance. "'Why, why were you glad?' he asked. "'Because I, because you, because I didn't want to kill you, and I would have killed you if you had sold them hooch.' "'You wouldn't, really.' "'Yes, I would,' cried the girl, and Brent saw that the dark eyes flashed. "'I would kill a hooch runner as I would a wolf.' They are wolves. They're worse than wolves. Wolves kill for meat, but they kill for money. They take the fur that would put bread in the mouths of the women and the little babies, and they make the men drunken and no good. There used to be thirty of us in the band, and now there are only sixteen. Two of the men deserted their families since we came here, because they would not stay where there was no hooch. The girl ceased speaking and glanced quickly upward. "'Snow!' she cried. "'It is starting to snow, and darkness will soon be here. 
I must draw these caribou before they freeze. She drew the knife from her belt and stepped to the carcass of the bull. But Brent took it from her hand. Let me do it, he said eagerly. You stand there and tell me how, and we'll have it done in no time. Tell you how, exclaimed the girl. What do you mean? Brent laughed. I'm afraid I'm still an awful chechako about some things. I can shoot them all right, but there has always been someone to do the drawing and skinning and cutting up. But I'll learn quickly. Where do I begin? Under the minute directions of the girl, Brent soon had the big bull drawn. The two smaller animals were easier, and when the job was finished, he glanced apprehensively at the thickening storm. "'We had better go now,' he said. "'Do you know how far it is to your camp?' Nine or ten miles, I think,' answered the girl. "'We have only been here since fall, and this is the first time I have hunted in this direction. But first we must draw your caribou. If they freeze, they cannot be drawn, and then they will not be fit for food.' "'But the snow,' objected Brent. "'It is coming down faster all the time.' "'The snow won't bother us. There is no wind. Hurry, we must finish the others before dark.' "'But the wind might spring up at any moment, and if it does, we will have a regular blizzard.' "'Then we can camp,' answered the girl, and before the astounded man could reply, she had led off at a brisk pace in the direction of the other caribou. The early darkness was already beginning to make itself felt, and Brent drove to his task with a will, and to such good purpose, that the girl nodded hearty approval. "'You did learn quickly,' she smiled. "'I could not have done it any better, nor quicker, myself.' "'Thank you,' he laughed. "'And that is a real compliment.' for by the way you can handle a rifle, and cover ground on snowshoes, I know you are skookum tillicum. Yes, admitted the girl, I'm skookum tillicum. But I ought to be. I was born in the north, and I have lived in the woods and in the barrens and upon rivers all my life. Brent was about to reply when each glanced for a moment into the other's face, and then both stared into the north. From out of the darkness came a sullen roar, low and muffled and mighty, like the roar of surf on the shore of a distant sea. "'It is the wind!' cried the girl. "'Quick, take a shoulder of meat. We must find shelter and camp.' "'I can't cut a leg-bone with this knife.' "'There are no bones. It is like this.' She snatched the knife from Brent's hand, and, with a few deft slashes, severed a shoulder from the yearling caribou. "'Come, quick!' she urged, and led the way toward a dark blotch that showed in the scraggling timber a few hundred yards away. "'When the storm strikes, we shall not be able to see,' she flung over her shoulder. "'We must make that thicket of spruce, or we're bushed.' Louder and louder sounded the roar of the approaching wind. Brent, encumbered with his rifle and the shoulder of meat, found it hard to keep up with the girl, whose snowshoes fairly flew over the snow. 
they gained the thicket a few moments before the storm struck. The girl paused before a thick spruce that had been broken off and lay with its trunk caught across the upstanding butt some four feet from the ground. Jerking the axe from its sheath, she set to work lopping branches from the dead tree. "'Break some live branches for the roof of our shelter,' she commanded. "'This stuff will do for firewood, and in a minute you can take the axe and I will build the wicky up.' The words were snatched from her lips by the roar of the storm. Full upon them now, it bent and swayed the thick spruces, as if to snap them at their roots. Brent gasped for breath in the first rush of it, and the next moment was coughing the flinty dry snow-powder from his lungs. No longer were there snowflakes in the air. The air itself was snow, snow that seared and stung as it bit into lips and nostrils, that sifted into the collars of capote and mackinaw and seized neck and throat in a deadly chill. Back and forth Brent stumbled, bearing limbs which he tore from the trunks of trees, and as he laid them at her feet the girl deftly arranged them. The axe made the work easier, and at the end of a half hour the girl shouted in his ear that there were enough branches. Removing their rackets, they stood them upright in the snow, and, stooping, the girl motioned him to follow as she crawled through a low opening in what appeared to be a mountain of spruce boughs. To his surprise, Brent found that inside the wickiup he could breathe freely. The fine powdered snow, collecting upon his close-lying needles, had effectively sealed the roof and walls. For another half hour the two worked in the intense blackness of the interior, with hands and feet pushing the snow out through the opening, and when the task was finished they spread a thick floor of the small branches that the girl had piled along one side. Only at the opening there were no branches, and there upon the ground the girl proceeded to build a tiny fire. "'We must be careful,' she cautioned and only build a small fire, or our house will burn down." As she talked she opened a light pack-sack that Brent had noticed upon her shoulders, and drew from its interior a rabbit robe which she spread upon the boughs. Then from the pack she produced a small stew-pan and a little package of tea. She filled the pan with snow and smiled up into Brent's face and now at last we are snug and comfortable for the night we can live here for days if necessary the caribou are not far away and we have plenty of tea you are a wonder breathed brent meeting squarely the laughing gaze of the dark eyes do you know that if it had not been for you i would have been would never have weathered this storm you were not born in the bush she reminded, as she added more snow to the pan. "'I do not even know your name,' she said gravely. "'And yet I feel—' She paused, and Brent, his voice raised hardly above a whisper, asked eagerly, "'Yes, you feel—how do you feel?' "'I feel as though—as though I had known you always, as though you were my friend.' "'Yes.' he answered, 
and it was with an effort he kept the emotion from his voice. "'We have known each other always, and I am your friend. My name is Carter Brent. And now tell me something about yourself. Who are you, and why did you tell me you were an Indian?' "'I am an Indian,' she replied quickly. "'That is, I am a half-breed. My father was a white man.' And what is your name? Snowdrift. Snowdrift, he cried. What an odd name. Is it your last name or your first? Why, it is the only name I have, and I never had any other. But your father, what was your father's name? There was a long moment of silence while the girl threw more snow into the pan and added wood to the fire. Then her words came slowly, and Brent detected a peculiar note in her voice. He wondered whether it was bitterness or pain. "'My father is dead,' she answered. "'I do not know his name. Why is Snowdrift an odd name?' "'I think it a beautiful name,' cried Brent. "'Do you, really?' The dark eyes were regarding him with a look in which happiness seemed to be blended with fear, lest he were mocking her. "'Indeed I do. I love it. And now tell me more, of your life, of your education.' "'I went to school at the Mission on the Mackenzie. I went there for a good many years, and I worked hard, for I liked to study. And books! I love to read books!' I read all they had, and some of them many times. Do you love books? Why, yes, answered Brent. I used to. I haven't read many since I came north. Why did you come north? I came for gold. For gold? cried the girl, her eyes shining. That is why we are here. Wananabish says there is gold here in the barrens. Once, many years ago, she found it. But we have tried to find the place again, and we cannot. Who is Wananabish? Wananabish is my mother. She is an Indian, and she has tried to keep the band together through many years, and to keep them away from the hooch, but they will not listen to her. It was hard work to persuade them to come away from the river. And have you found gold? Yes, answered Brent. Way over beyond the mountains that lie to the westward of the Mackenzie, I found much gold. But I lost it. Lost it? Oh, that was too bad. Did it fall off your sled? Well, not exactly, answered the man dryly. In my case it was more of a toboggan. Couldn't you find it again? No, other men have it now. And they won't give it back? No, it is theirs. That part of it is all right, only I would give anything in the world to have it now. Why do you want it now? Can you not find more gold? I guess I do not understand. Brent shook his head. No, you do not understand. 
But sometime you will understand. Sometime I think I shall have many things to tell you. And then I want you to understand. The girl glanced at him wonderingly as she threw a handful of tea into the pan. You must sharpen some green sticks and cut pieces of meat, she said, and we will eat our supper. A silence fell upon them during the meal, a silence broken only by the roar of the wind that came to them as from afar, muffled as it was by its own freighting of snow. Hardly for a moment did Brent take his eyes from the girl. There was a great unwanted throbbing in his breast that seemed to cry out to him to take the girl in his arms and hold her tight against his pounding heart and the next moment the joy of her was gone, and in its place was a dull, heavy pain. "'Now I know why I like you,' said the girl abruptly as she finished her piece of venison. "'Yes,' smiled Brent. "'And are you going to tell me?' "'It is because you are good,' she continued, without noting the quick catch in the man's breath. "'Men who hunt for gold are good.' My father was good, and he died hunting for gold. Wananabish told me. It was years and years ago, when I was a very little baby. I know from reading in books that many white men are good, but in the North they are bad, unless they are of the police, or are priests, or factors. I had sworn to hate all men who came into the North, but I forgot the men who hunt gold. I am glad you remembered them, answered Brent gravely. I hope you are right. I am sleepy, announced the girl. We cannot both sleep in this robe, for we have only one, and to keep warm it is necessary to roll up in it. One of us can sleep half the night while the other tends the fire, and then the other will sleep. You go to sleep, said Brent. I will keep the fire going. I am not a bit sleepy, and besides, I have a whole world of thinking to do. I will wake up at midnight, and then you can sleep, she said, and taking off her moccasins and leggings and long woolen stockings, she arranged them upon sticks to dry and rolled up in the thick robe. Good night, called Brent as she settled down. Good night. "'And may God keep you. You forgot that part,' she corrected gravely. "'We used to say that at the mission.' "'Yes,' answered Brent. "'May God keep you. I did forget that part.' Suddenly the girl raised her head. "'Do you believe we have known each other always?' she asked. "'Yes, girl,' he answered. "'I believe we have known each other since the beginning of time itself.' Why did you come way over here to find gold? I have heard that there is much gold beyond the mountains to the westward. It was upon Brent's tongue to say, I came to find you, but he restrained the impulse. All the gold claims that are any good are taken up over there, he explained, and I read in a book that a man gave me that there was gold here. What kind of a book was that? I never read a book about gold. It was an old book. 
one that the man had picked up over in the Hudson Bay country. Its title was torn off, but upon one of its pages was written a man's name, probably the name of the former owner of the book. I have often wondered who he was. The name was Murdo McFarlane. Murdo McFarlane? cried the little girl, sitting bolt upright and staring at Brent. Yes, answered the man. Do you know him? The girl reached out and tossed her belt to Brent. It is the name upon the sheaf of the knife, she answered. It is Wananabish's knife. I broke the point of mine. Brent took the sheath and held it close to the light of the little fire. Murdo McFarlane, he deciphered. Yes, the name is the same. And long after the girl's regular breathing told him she was sleeping, he repeated the name again. Murdo McFarlane. I don't know who you were or who you are, if you still live, but whoever you were, or whoever you are, here's good luck to you, Murdo McFarlane. End of chapter 14 Recording by Roger Moline